Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. On this theme about manager selection, I mean, I think we've all learned about the benefit of diversification and how this is the only free lunch in finance, but at what point does diversification become diversification meaning at what point do you need to stop adding more managers <laughs> yeah uh, i don't know who wants to go first on that one oh i'm happy to go okay that one. okay <laughs> we uh we do have a little bit of that so just to, to go back to the previous point actually the difference between the managers and and how that has changed over time i was working at a quant macro cta between the periods of 2005 and 11 mm -hmm. so it was an interesting period because I was really trading. I was the head of trading as well as the quant research in 2008, which was the time where everything really happened and just the markets went haywire. And around then, the uh, CTAs, and it's a really a misnomer, I should call managed futures, that the, the, the space was a little bit more it, it wasn't as different or as broad, as, if you will, uh, at the time. The trend following was trend following, but you, you didn't really have the the more uh, the the newer big data systematic type of strategies that are artificial intelligence and the the ones that have come into place that have actually have, are not really exactly trend following or not e even connected to trend following at all but they are still in the same bucket of strategies so i think that has changed the spectrum and that has changed the profile of what we call managed futures. It's not one style and it's difficult to bucket them. It's really a whole host of strategies. So it's been difficult to pick and choose. And there are a lot of strategies that look like each other, having covered that space for some time and having worked in it. And it still is not easy to pick. And uh, as Ryan alluded to earlier, the correlations really converge in certain under certain environments. So it's not, you don't really get a whole lot of diversification which brings me to the question that you just asked. We do have fund of funds predominantly in our portfolio, and that was necessary given our size and the resources at the time. And we're still a relatively small team, so it does still make sense. But when you have fund of funds, what that means is you actually have a portfolio of and it ranges from, let's say, 10 to 30 managers. And if you have, say, two, three managers, now you're roughly at, what, uh, 40, 52, uh, 70, 80 managers lineup. Sure. Um, and then everything really looks pretty similar and you start seeing allocations that are not material. So the way I would think about it is there's no real number to, or a specific number that, you know, that would 
be applicable to everyone. But having worked with institutional investors over the years, the magic range, if you will, depending on what you're trying to cover, how many types of strategies or asset classes you're trying to cover. If you're looking at one asset class, I'd say it would be running between 10 and 20. And that's where you would be getting decent diversification into an asset class. If you're looking into a subsect of an asset class, you could even get that with maybe three or four. Sure. That uh, makes perfect sense. Now, let me get back to you, Carrie. I wasn't entirely sure from your first answer, actually, whether you do use beta replication or whether you only use sort of the the real thing, if I can put it like that, in, in your portfolio. But but my follow-up question would also be a little bit, I'm, I'm just curious here. I mean, when you look at this type of, of, of investments and, and certainly also during the implementation phase, do you try to to time these strategies a, a little bit, or is that just something that you say, well, you know, we can't we can't do it? Sure. As far as getting access to time series momentum beta, sure. that is what we are trying to do in our trend following program with the medium long term exposure. We did want pure trend exposure, we selected managers that had very little or no other types of diversifying models in their programs. The systematic risk premium program, it's a little bit different in that we define that typically as long, short, uh, various style factors like value carry momentum across multiple asset classes and generally in a market neutral fashion. So that definition is a little bit different. As sure. far as timing, trend following, we ask all of the managers that that we meet with if they can predict when trends will happen, and none of them can. And so I think it'd even be harder for me to do that. So we do just have a, a systematic allocation exposure to this area. We don't know when the next crisis will happen, what form it will take. Sure. Yeah. No, and as Ryan said, I mean, it's not always just in the crisis area that these strategies do well. So yes. so that makes that makes perfect sense. Uh, now, of course, uh, we've mentioned the word a couple of times now, so I think it's now time to talk about it a little bit, and that is the word fees. I think, and, and this could be a little bit controversial, but I mean, I think a lot of institutions have been sold by firms who offer the low flat fee products that you know, in this, uh, so in the trend following space, that it's so easy to to capture these returns that therefore it should be very cheap to to deliver. So, you know, I, 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 I'm interested in your opinion about what is the right kind of fees nowadays and what are the right levels of fees. And also if fees are more important than net performance, you know, from a sort of psychological point of view when you have to present these things. And, and, and I, the, the reason I ask this is because I haven't really seen any of these low-cost products, at least in the trend-following space, that consistently and over sort of a longer period have outperformed the the established trend-followers. And I even noticed the other day that there's a new index from Bridge Alternatives that tracks the five biggest managers that provide these low-cost trend products. And, and that index haven't even outperformed the, the SOCGEN CTA index. So personally... I'm not a big believer in this approach, but I know that may not be the opinion of, of, of you. So Ella, why why don't you why don't you start on, on, on this one? So the 
Um, it's actually two questions in there, right? The first one is... There are many questions the, in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> one is, uh, let me see uh, which one I'd like to tackle. Uh, I can start with the fee and maybe... The kind of fees, and, the levels of fees. The, and the, and, and, uh, yeah. the combination of management and performance fee and, and really oh. it's the flat fee products versus the flagship products that are the uh, full-blown yeah. versions of those, the non-beta products, if you will. So we've done some work on fee actually since I joined and it's, it's as I mentioned it's been a big deal recently as we've been all reading in the media so my perspective on the fees is really it needs to be a good combination of management and performance fee and we're talking now in the alpha land not in the yeah. alternative risk premium land and the way I think about it is really management fee should be per unit of volatility rather than just a set number so just the 220 the way it has come about has been really has emanated from a 10% vol, 10% return. So if you will, in, in sort of uh, thinking of uh, one IR or one sharp, depending on what you use for benchmark or risk fee rate, sure. that that's the, the pedigree and that's how it, this number has come about. But the 2% of 10% return portfolio is not the same thing as 2% of a 5% return portfolio, right? And so it does really Correct. eat into performance faster, which really drops the information ratio faster. So, and this has not really happened. The volatility of a lot of the strategies have come down. The fees have not been adjusted. So, the management fee, if you will. Performance fee is really an ad hoc number. So, and our perspective has been, we, we want to align ourselves with the, with the managers. So, we want to pay the management fee for two reasons. One, management fee really pays the bills and keeps the lights on. And that is what managers uh, live on are based on but as as the assets grow does that really is that really as important and also a management fee without a management fee a performance fee only structure it could create an environment that would that could lead to excessive risk taking to meet a performance so management fee really creates a basis for the manager to just take a longer term approach and not be rushed to get to the return so that they can stay afloat because if there's no performance there's no money they need to get the performance and we don't want to create a behavior as such so it needs to be a good combination of the two so we've been working on it and we've made a good headway except in managed futures <laughs> that has been <laughs> macro and managed futures has been a difficult one partially because a lot of the strategies are really targeting volatility so the vol levels are not lower but the returns level have been challenging but i think the evolution has not really seeped into that part of the market having said that there are exceptions to that rule and th there are managers who actually have gone down the path of doing alternative risk premia or changing their fee structure. And and I would agree with you that the performance may not be as good as the flagship product, but depending on what you're looking at, the marginal benefit may not justify the performance. And I'm not saying that it does not, but we do look into whether it does make sense to actually go for the full-blown flagship product versus the more flat fee, the set product that just gives you what you need over the medium to long term. So it, there is no yes or no answer. We actually combined the two. So it's a smaller portion of, of that uh, macro portfolio, roughly 10 to 15%. That's beta, uh, alternative beta. And the rest is really alpha strategy. But we do have also hedge fund beta type of strategies in there that does 
it doesn't replicate, but it does look to exploit hedge fund risk premia, if you will. And, and those are also cheaper products that do deliver a similar return profile with actually a lower volatility. Sure. Now, Carrie and Ryan, feel free to add anything if you want. Otherwise, I wanted just uh, in, in, in being considerate of, of our time, I wanted to jump to the next question unless you have something to, to add to this point about fees. I, I re- really quickly, I was just going to say that, you know, I echo a lot of uh, Ellis points. I mean, I think, you know, looking at return per unit of fee or unit of risk per unit of yeah. fee uh, makes complete sense. And, you know, distilling that into what percentage of, you know, the gross return is is allocated among, you know, the manager and the investors, you know, kind of an easy way to distill that. And then, you know, I think, you know, from there, looking at this through the lens of alpha and beta, you know, really helps determine what's, you know, what's appropriate and kind of where the market settles in terms of pricing for return streams that are really high quality and really novel. Investors, you know, would be willing to pay more for those for returns that are not not novel and very easy to get. Stuff like equity index exposure, but they're basically free. I think trend following is somewhere in the middle, and you know, as a result, that's why you know that's that's why the fees are are, are or tend to be somewhere uh, somewhere in the middle as well. And depending on how much you know how simple the strategy is, or you know how much additional thought or work has gone into things like risk management and portfolio construction, and those things to the extent that those things add value, managers, you know should be able to justify higher fees and investors should be, you know, should be willing to pay them all all sequel. I'm going to be jumping back to you, Carrie. So if you do have anything you want to add to this, by, by all means, feel free to do so. But my my question is more with regards to this has been, you know, a very long-term project for you, as you mentioned, and it took, you know, substantial resources and, and, and time. What what did you learn along the way that you perhaps could pass on to other pension funds and investors who are considering adding some kind of risk mitigation allocation? That's a great question. It certainly does require a lot of resources and time. It's a very complex area and we we didn't approach hedge funds as an asset class. We looked at each strategy individually and really hedge funds is just a legal structure. Uh, it's mm. really the packaging around what type of return stream we're trying to access and being very specific about what your objective is for that investment and communicating that well is I think very key because if your objective is say, a different type of return stream as opposed to a risk reduction type uh, objective, then the way you approach it could be very different. And just having a consistent story and a lot of uh, data to back that up was very important. Sure. No, absolutely. Ella, do you approach it differently or how do you approach this in terms of you know, your ex- experience and what you've learned and, and passing that on to other people who might be looking in this direction? <laughs> so, the the experience has been pretty much along the lines of what just Carrie mentioned. I, sure. I've done a lot of analysis. I've written long, long technical notes in my previous role and talked to institutional investors. But we have one client and that's WSIB Investment Committee. And talking to them, we have 
created extensive research and we worked on numbers and it's been a lot of a lot of second guessing ourselves and this was not uh, any easy path and this is despite the fact that I do understand the managed future space I've been in it for over 10 years now and I do understand the details of it but there are so many little nuances that we needed to get the story right and every portfolio is slightly different so we had to do our homework and we had to go out and, and understand what else was out there so the before before embarking on this i think it's important to understand what is really the end game and to understand the time frame that you're looking at because if it is a shorter time frame and people sometimes get eluded into the thinking that it's a quarterly return profile quarterly returns don't really mean much it's really longer time frames and what i've learned over the last year that i've been here it's about repeating the same message again and again and again and ensuring that you have all the information to back you up and all the research because the questions that sometimes come up are something that you may not have thought of or you wouldn't have thought of in uh, in a long time but that that needs to be addressed and so you need to fill out all the questions in your mind before you you embark on it and it's not just about the first step you need to talk of think of the entire end game and that could be years so i've learned that it's not just about the first part it's the vision so you need to share the vision and have a vision as where the portfolio is going and from an institutional perspective i think that's key because it's not where you're standing here but where you might be standing in five years from now and what the, the needs might be and how you need to be flexible. Sure. It's a great, uh, great answer, Ryan. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question, if you wouldn't mind. And that is, of course, that a lot of investors who, who uh, want these strategies, they often want them right after a crisis where they realize they should have had them, but they didn't. So money chases returns. And, and, and I guess that is also the case for for institutions. And, and therefore, there was a big flood of money into the CTA and trend-following space, managed futures after the crisis of 2008. And of course, as history often does, it proves that it hasn't been the greatest time necessarily to be allocated in, in recent years. So, so I just wanted to ask you in terms of with all the research you've done and if we should pass on some kind of advice or perspective, kind of what Ella just alluded to. I mean, how should people or how should investors look at this space when it comes to returns? And is there any reason for concern by the fact that we've had lower returns in the last few years? So, I mean, I think this goes back to just trying to understand the, you know, the very fundamentals of why, what the strategy is, how it works, and where the returns come from. You know, I think that helps, that hopefully helps with this question. And so, you know, trend following generates its returns from, from trends in the market. And a lot of trends tend to happen during uh, during dislocation periods. And this you know this this recent period since the crisis has been I don't know if it's been you know unique or all that different or unusual, but there have not been any big dislocations to speak of uh, since the crisis. You know, as, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with the you know the extraordinary actions of policymakers and you know really really suppressing dislocation or suppressing volatility, you know, as a matter of policy. And so 
I don't think that that will go on perpetually or will, you know, will go on forever. And there will, you know, there have, you know, there there have always been dislocations in markets and, and there always will be, but you, you can have these periods where, you know, returns are, are flat or slightly down or not that exciting for, you know, for many years. And, you know, this can be the case with any investment. I mean, investments go in and out of favor. You can have periods certainly for, you know, equities or, or bonds or, you know, any other investment that, you know, that are where performance is flat or down for a long time. And, you know, if your portfolio is diversified, hopefully some other things are working for you. There are other, you know, there are other pistons in the engine that are that are firing and are allowing you to, to keep going and, and propel yourself uh, on. And so, you know, just because there have not been any dislocations in the last few years isn't in my opinion a you know a reason you know not to be allocated to you know to something to trend following just like you know a particularly disappointing you know multi-year growth period wouldn't be in a you know wouldn't be a good reason to no longer be allocated to equities or you know not add not add equities to the portfolio if the shoe is on the other foot and the starting point were different Sure, absolutely. You're kind of tempted to wish that something or someone could make trend following great again, but I'm not sure what that might be right now. Now, Carrie, throughout this long process of building your teams and, and the mandates, what are the issues and risks that you are concerned about that may still be a little bit unclear how, how to handle? Is that something you continue to research and maybe you have some ideas that you can share? With macro and trend in particular, we've looked at a lot of historical data, but because these strategies can behave very differently going forward, of course, there's no guarantee as far as how they will mitigate some risk going forward. So there's always that uncertainty, but we find confidence in in the investment process with these managers and their experience and just takes a, a lot of due diligence to get to that point. With systematic risk premia, there's been a ton of academic research to support these types of strategies and their value, but they really have not been tested through a, a downturn. Right. And sure. so that still remains to be seen. What about you, Ryan? Just maybe briefly, is there anything that keeps you up at night when it comes to this part of your portfolio? No, not really. I mean, that's you know one of the really nice things about being uh, diversified along a lot of different dimensions is you know it's okay if you know a few line items in our portfolio don't do much or don't do anything because some other things you know, some other things should be working. There's a, uh, I think there's a, you know, nice sleep well at night fact with trend following just because of you know, how the strategy works, you know, to the extent that the, the positions managers in at a point in time aren't working, the strategy is self-correcting from the perspective that those positions will turn over and, and change and losses will be, you know, will sort of be stemmed that way. I mean, it's of course possible that, you know, you could have a, a really, really long period where a manager is chopped in and out of position. I think that's, you know, kind of been the case for a lot of strategies this past year or past 18 months. But, you know, look, we, we look to the, you know, very long empirical histories that, you know, strategies like trend following have. Uh, and then, you know, there's a 
there's a lot of comfort in the you know economic intuition you know behind trend following as well that you know suggests human nature will lead investors and market participants to overreact and underreact to new information and it's something that's you know kind of evolutionarily in our DNA i don't think that that's going to change at least anytime soon and so you know, keeping the perspective that, you know, you're a long-term investor and sometimes that means, you know, your your horizon is maybe longer than you'd like it to be in terms of years, but, you know, it, it makes sense to, to hold something like this in a diversified portfolio because it does well in a certain kind of market environment and balances the risks of other things that don't do well in, in, in those kinds of environments. So, you know, it's it's important to try to to, to mitigate and you know, minimize your exposure to blind spots, as it were. And I think that, you know, trend following covers a blind spot or blind spots that, you know, that are that are not easy to cover for, you know, for a lot of other investments that that, that investors hold. And, you know, from that perspective, it's a really powerful tool in the toolbox. Absolutely. Now, as we start to wrap up our conversation, I wanted to ask all of you a slightly related question, and that is working with managed futures and, and trend following within your portfolios and doing all your research and implementation of them. What has been the most surprising finding that you've come across during this process? And of course, this could be a good surprise or it could be a bad, bad surprise. Ella, what, what have you come across in, 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 in your work? So as since I took over the portfolio, I wanted to understand exactly how it was lined up. And one of the things that I found out was that, and now it's been, we, we've sort of evolved it and, and realigned the portfolio, if you will. But I, I realized that there was a lot of conditional correlation. So in certain market environments, just the strategy started behaving exactly the same, which did not really show up in the regular correlation. So if you looked at the certain timeframes, and if you bulk the type of strategies, and this is not just for managed futures, but other types of strategies as well, you lost that whole diversification that you think you'd be getting from it. And I, I think it goes back to the strategic asset allocation, which should be taking over in periods of distress. And the manager selection becomes actually a minor point. So really, under normal circumstances, manager selection is as important as your strategic mix. But when there's financial distress, the strategic mix actually drives your portfolio performance. So it depends how much you put into equities and really how much you have in bonds or how much you have in privates and hedge funds or and specifically, let's say, in, in trend following is going to dictate rather than which managers you selected, right? Mm. So I, I already knew that, but looking at the portfolio and looking at how some of the strategies did behave similarly was quite interesting and realized that the space had become there, there were too many managers and everybody was looking very similar to each other, especially under similar circumstances. So we did take some steps and we actually reduced the allocations and I mean the number of managers and the lineup. So sure. we put in higher conviction exposures into the portfolio, but it, it was it was interesting to see it actually in action. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Carrie? What surprises have, have you had in, in, in your research and your work? Yeah, kind of along those lines of correlation, and as mentioned before a bit, when looking at trend following, it, it seems like it's there's a very standard definition of what it is, but when you look under the hood, it, it is very complex, and a lot of these small decisions can result in very drastic 
drastically different outcomes. And in addition to the complexity of the investment process, something that hasn't been mentioned yet was how important the execution is as well on the on the back of all sure. of that. And yeah. and I'm also just very excited about the industry and what's being done on the machine learning front or what different mm -hmm. types of data that are being used and it continues to evolve and that's what's very interesting about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ryan, I'm going to jump to something different as, as as we're wrapping up this, but maybe you want to, to chime in on this because I wanted to ask you also, the three of you, if there's anything that you want to bring up with each other. I wanted certainly to give you the opportunity to ask each other a, a question since we're here. So I don't know if you have a question to one another. Otherwise, I'll I'll run to my sort of final question. But but feel free if there's anything you want to bring up. I mean, nothing in particular. It you know, it's nice. It sounds like you know we're uh, we're all sim simpatico on a lot of things philosophically. So I guess that's you know it's just kind of nice to learn, and I think it'll be uh, you know fun to to potentially catch up with each of you offline and you know just learn a bit more about you know what you're doing in uh you know in the in the managed futures and risk premium hedge fund uh, parts of your portfolios. Sure. Yeah, I agree good. as well. Good. Good. Okay, <laughs> then I have sort of one final one, which actually is a little bit related to what you answered there, Ryan. And that is, you know, I'm sure you get together with other institutions from time to time at industry conferences. And I wanted to ask you, what is the general sort of openness by pension funds and similar institutions to these strategies? Because in the press, of course, you hear about some and even some big ones pulling out of alternatives and others like yourself increasing the commitment to this area. What is your impression when you meet and, and, and the microphones are turned off of sort of the overall institutional appetite for, for this area? Maybe, Carrie, you want to, uh, you want to share some of your... Sure. I guess the most obvious example of that is CalPERS withdrawing its hedge fund investments. And we actually sure. share a number of the same board members. And I think we we went about approaching hedge funds in a very different way. And again, as we emphasized the education of why specific strategies and building it out solely, we were able to build comfort with our program. But certainly when other investors reconsider their hedge fund allocation, we're all, all looking at each other as peers and want to understand their decision process and whether it applies to our situation or not. So I think as we can gather from this conversation, we're all facing a, a number of similar challenges on fees and justifying the the role of these strategies and the complexity of them. Sure. No, absolutely. W what about you, Ella, up north? Uh, is, is the attitude towards this space? Yeah, we we have a, we have a very interesting <laughs> mix of institutional investors here. As you know, we have Ontario teachers here, PPIB, yeah. OMERS. So they're the uh, the sophisticated, the larger, and 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 all institutional plans I've met so far are sophisticated. But when I say sophisticated, I mean with internal resources, large assets that they can devote to doing more. And there is more acceptance on that end versus as you go down the size spectrum. It's not, it's not, it's not to say that a smaller 
institutional plans do not have hedge funds or they're not along the lines of looking into managed futures. But it, it's been a little bit more conservative when you get into the smaller sized institutional investors. And that's been, that's been gradually changing as I go to events and I'm speaking at events and I tend to speak on managed futures more often than on hedge funds per se. I see that there is more acceptance and there's more understanding. I think the, the education is now being a little bit more widespread and we're moving in that direction. It's under the guidance, if you will, in the light of, of the, the larger plans who are at the forefront of this effort in Canada. So, of course, we're very connected, not just in Canada, across the board, North America in general, as well as in Europe. So everybody's aware. It, it's, it's slowly shifting. It's not an overnight process. So there is a lot more talk on, on adding alternatives. But right now, the interest is more on infrastructure. Um, or, or predominantly on private markets rather than hedge funds. So I wouldn't call it right. an outflow. I think it's moved towards it, but it's more gradual. Sure, sure, sure. And Ryan, just just uh, finishing up with you, uh, what what's your impression on your side? Has is there enough people who have read your study and and been convinced about it? <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I I think you know to echo echo earlier comments. I think that it's uh, it's come a long way, but maybe it still has a long way to go. I think a lot of investors are you know making small allocations to these strategies, or at least you know open to learning about them. But you know, certainly much more than was the case uh, five or ten years ago. I think you know the experience in 2008 led a lot of investors to look at what at least the potential of strategies like this is. So it's it's come a long way. I, I don't know that there's uh, much else to add beyond that. No, that's fine. I mean, we've talked about a few different key topics in our conversation today. Um, but of course, is there a question that you feel that is really important that that I didn't ask you today uh, that you want to share as we wrap up this conversation? The silence. Yeah, I, I think I votes for. I, I don't have anything else. <laughs> you did a great job. Yeah, I agree. I think so too. Good, good, good. Well, on that positive note, let's wrap up this awesome conversation about managed futures and how it helps some of the biggest investors in the world mitigate risk in their portfolios. Carrie, Ella and Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and opinions on today's topic. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation. And to our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying, I hope you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in Managed Futures. From me, Niels Kostroblasen and our exclusive sponsor, CME Group, thanks for listening. And I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. And in the meantime, Go check out the amazing free resources you can find on cmegroup.com as well as toptradersroundtable.com. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.